Jesus, Bambi. That was kind of not consensual. You drank before I could explain. I've been trying to figure out how to help you. This was the only way I could think of to keep your hands clean of Seb's murder. Except they literally won't be. Those are my hands. Look, you're the one who can get close. I'm the one with the will to stab. <sighs> Elle, I love you, but we have to do this thing. Even you agree with that. This is the best compromise I could come up with. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Physical Kids Weekly. I'm Clara. And I'm Danny. And we're here with writers Alex Raymond and Jay Gard to talk about episode 508, Garden Variety Homicide. Alex and Jay, welcome to Physical Kids Weekly. It's so nice to finally have you on. It's great to be here. So good to be here. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Before we dive into the episode, we thought it was so cool that you write all of your episodes together. The other two episodes being Home Improvement, a.k.a. the Dragon Jizz episode, and all that. Josh, can you tell us about your partnership? What makes you work together so well? Well, I think that one of the things that makes us work together really well is that we disagree all the time. <laughs> uh, otherwise, we would be on the right. Um, but I think that we, we come at things often from very different uh, sort of places, you know, we come at it either, you know, Jay is sort of, uh, is a very, very analytical writer and he can break down a scene and sort of talk about the elements that you need in terms of the structure and, um, just the motivation and the plot engines that you need in a really, really, really great way that helps you to understand just the basics of the scene. Um, and, you know, there are times when I, 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 hopefully, I think we both do this, but throw in a lot of the color and the sort of the meat and the, you know, the, the fun of the, the scene. Um, we essentially, a lot of the times the way that we work is that we, I will do the first draft and Mm. it comes out like a big pile of garbage usually. (laughs) And then Jay picks through that garbage and finds little gold nuggets, little pieces of plot that actually work. And then together we sort of, you know, make a little compact garbage and then <laughs> to the, the showrunners and they turn it into something that's eventually that's good. They send us back eight times on a draft. And Just to pick through that explanation for sort of the nuggets, I would say that uh, I would say that that's a fair representation of us as a writing team. But I don't think Alex is giving himself quite enough credit. I think what Alex does is he brings the heart and the humanity and a lot of the energy onto the page. And then basically it's, it's, uh, my job is to, to see if I can help organize it, see if I can pick out the, the best parts of it and, um, and sort of streamline it. And then we get into the nitty gritty together once it's sort of all mapped out in a, in a logical order and make sure that it's reading is fun, that we've got enough jokes, that it's, um, that the themes are clear and that uh, someone would read it and not fall asleep, which is usually uh, the problem with my writing. (laughs) I think your episodes are always super funny. Like, there's definitely a good number of jokes in all of them. I think the... The one last season, the Dragon Jizz episode, uh, (laughs) was probably one of the funniest episodes on The Magicians, bar none. They definitely gave us a lot of runway with that episode. (laughs) Yeah, it was definitely uh, a lot of fun, but a very broad episode. I think that there was a lot of, there was like a really great emotional storyline, I think, with Poppy being pregnant and Quentin thinking that might be his, 
Uh, and that was what allowed you to do some ridiculous humor was, and that's the magicians in a nutshell is there's mm-hmm. always a real grounded, emotional human storyline yeah. mm-hmm. that allows you to talk about dragon jizz and you know, dragon porn and the real stuff, you know, that you want to be talking about <laughs> the important <laughs> questions. Exactly. Well, Danny mentioned to me, um, I think you told her this, Alex, that y'all had the secret history by Donna Tart on your required reading list for the season. And yes. that really yes. piqued my curiosity, piqued both of our curiosity, I think, about those lists in general. So I kind of wanted to ask, like, first, what is the relationship between what you read in the writer's room and what you end up writing? And second, what other books were on the list? Ooh, this is a tough one. Yeah, I, I wonder if I could get the list up right now. Um, but I think that g- generally, as far as the books that we... Uh, sometimes they'll put a book on the list and we'll never even talk about it in the room, but it, it <laughs> affects, I think it, it seeps into the writer's mm. subconscious. And yeah, I mean, I, I think that there are clear influences from secret history to the magician's novels. Um, you, you can just see the idea of a character with these psychological uh, traumas that they're going through, trying to break into the secret society this world mm. that they want to be a part of. And so if you look at it just as an influence on the magician's novel, you can definitely see that it's there. And then I was, I think there was something that we wanted to explore about break bills as this institution that you didn't exactly know all. You didn't know everything. Um, things that mm. we wanted to bring in, like the League, uh, like a, a fantastic part of the books that we always love, that every season Jay is like throwing Hail Marys and trying to get into the show. <laughs> we, um, we saw Wharton. <laughs> yeah, Wharton and like fun stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But to look at Secret History as the story of this this guy who is trying to get in with the cool kids, essentially, that's it's such a clear magician's allegory. Another book that we read was a book called Some. Um, I think we read this one actually for season four, but it's it's one that stuck with us. Um, I think through not just the magicians, but through some other work that we've done. It's written by a guy named David Eagleman, who is a neuroscience scientist, and um, it's forty short stories that are forty different, I guess, thought exercises about what the afterlife might be like. Oh, um, and I can see of, the influence there. Yeah, they're completely. Um, bizarre and outlandish and also kind of rooted in a scientific logic and based on things that I assume that he's learned about the human brain. And um, it's just a really fascinating way to just, as a thought exercise, pitch me 40 versions of the afterlife, go Hmm. read through these things. And it's just like, you know, you can just pick your favorite little elements and definitely a lot of influence came out of that. I'm trying to find the list, but I can't. I can't actually find it. Um, <laughs> we read a book called On Tyranny. Um, oh yeah, that was very... that, my friend of mine read that earlier this year and really liked it. Yeah, we watched a couple movies. I have a list somewhere too. <laughs> it's okay. That's a good start. But I think that it's you know there are there are writers that we read and we and we try to emulate the sort of way they get into the minds of characters. There are little bits of magic. I mean, there are like like the book some. There are a lot of very cool magic rules in there mm-hmm. that help yeah. us to. Sometimes you can't quite illustrate um, just the sort of the rules of the universe until you see somebody else establish it in a way. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Because you know magicians is is was sort of 
conceived as a satire of Harry Potter, essentially, yeah. mm-hmm. and Narnia. Mm-hmm. And so all of those rules are based on other things. So to really get a sense of what magicians is, it helps to understand the foundation, because Lev Grossman has this encyclopedic knowledge of everything fantasy. And so oh, yeah. <laughs> I think every season it's like probably just us, us catching up to all of the books that he's read and trying <laughs> to understand like what makes all of the books work. Um, because he does. I'm now remembering that we read a chapter that he cut out of, I think it was The Magician's Land. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Everybody said it would hurt, um, which he published as a short story in another book. Is and this it's basically, the plum story? Yeah, it's the yeah. plum mm-hmm. story. And it was a huge reference point this year, um, just as we were finally bringing plum into the television version of The Magician's. <laughs> <laughs> I actually one of the reasons that I think like the secret history jumped out to me and Danny is so we read that along with three other magicians fans uh I think pre-show, right? That was like yeah, way back in up. the day. And in the first interview that we did with Lev before we had a podcast when it was just like by email, I think I asked him about the secret history and whether it was an influence. And I can't remember if he said he hadn't read it or just said that like, no, it wasn't an influence. And we were all kind of like shocked. But I think the like true fact is that both the magicians and the secret history have a lot of influence in Brideshead Revisited. Hmm. Which is, you know, <laughs> the the sort of template for a lot of, like, weird and highfalutin and uh, definitely queer-coded uh, <laughs> boarding school, college-type experiences. Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. So we ask everyone about this, and I'm pretty sure I know the answer, but have you guys read The Magician's books? And if so, was it before or after you got the job? Um. There are books. <laughs> <laughs> that would be useful for me. <laughs> uh, I had I had not read the magician's books when the job started, but actually, Alex, you're supposed to start talking first, so you start talking first. Well, every time. Um, <laughs> I hadn't either. No, I mean, I somehow they had they had slipped by me. They're so incredibly up my alley. I don't know how that was possible, um, but. No, I, you know, Jay was working for one of the showrunners, John McNamara, and an opportunity popped up for a script coordinator position, which is basically a guy who corrects typos and makes sure all the scene heads are correct. Um, And I uh, went in for the job, had not read the books. I think maybe I had read one, like I got an opportunity to come in like the next day. And I I basically blew through the first one and immediately loved it and went in there and basically was like, look, whether I get this job or not, I'm going to be a fan of the show. Mm. So just thank you for bringing it to TV. And then luckily I got the job, got to be a fan from the inside. Um, And then that week, I think, as they were like breaking the story for season one, I was like ferociously reading through book two and three so I could catch up and like, of course, pretending at lunch like I had read two and three already. Um, (laughs) But yeah, blew through them. Really love them all. I think that it's hard to top book one, but there's such a strong ending to the series. And uh, and book two is so much fun. I mean, it made for such a great season of TV. Like season mm-hmm. three is so beautifully episodic while the plot moves forward. It was such a fun one. One of the things I find so fun is that like you cannot find three fans who have the same favorite book from the series. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think I'm. I, there's a general consensus that three is better than two. I tend to disagree with that. 
on consensus. Um, I love the third book, but for me, the, I mean, as someone that just actually on just with an unbridled passion loves these sort of fantasy novels that take you into the strange land. Mm. Um, the second book is just like, I felt like in the first book, Lev is very, very careful to couch all of the fantasy world building in a sort of grounded, um, sort of darker, edgier approach. You know, this is how it would really be. Mm-hmm. And then in the second book, he's like, well, now we're in Fillory and Fillory has no rules. So fuck it. I'm just going <laughs> to throw things against the wall. I'm gonna, and if they don't make sense, that's the point. And it's almost infuriating yeah. to the extent to which it makes no sense. And um, as someone who, you know, reads the Harry Potter books and all I do is just go, but this plot hole doesn't make, why doesn't Harry just use the Accio spell? How much do you hate Quidditch? Of the task? <laughs> um, <laughs> I get the Quidditch scene. <laughs> yeah. I get frustrated with the logic of these fantasy worlds, especially when they pretend to have logic that they, that they don't adhere to themselves. And Lev was basically just like, there is no logic. And that's the point. And I just found it to be just incredibly freeing and ex- and super exciting because you just had no idea what was going to happen on the next page. I read the the first book before we shot the pilot, which was in New Orleans, but I was on set in New Orleans for the shooting of the pilot. And um, every weekend we would we wouldn't be shooting on the weekend, so I would go to a New Orleans restaurant, sit at the bar, and just blow through as many chapters as I could. I literally sat at a restaurant from the beginning of lunch to the end of their um, dinner. <laughs> I just stayed there and they like the lunch rush came and went and then they set up for dinner and then the dinner rush came and went and I had finished the entire second book um, in that sitting and it was I just really felt connected to it. Yeah, I mean, all three of the books are amazing, but they're like all kind of so different from one another. Like you yeah. said, the first one is just like really grounded um, which I know that Lev wrote it that way because, like, Narnia pissed him off, how, <laughs> <laughs> like, a lot. So, like, it was kind of his answer to that. Um, Narnia's pissed a lot of then, people like, off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The second one is, like, I I have a special place in it in my heart because of Julia. That's, mm-hmm. like, when she really just, like, comes to be, like... She's not really in the third one all that much, but like for Quentin's story, Magician's Land is definitely the best book. Like he just grows so much. It's like all about his growth and, and just like, it's so beautiful. Like, I mean, we could talk about it forever, but yeah. Yeah. Give me the, uh, the scene in the drowned garden all day and all night and I will be happy. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that the, the, thing that was interesting about fan reactions to season four was that there was a lot of discussion about how we had kind of mined everything there was to mine um, from the books. And we in the room were sitting there just feeling like we had so much that we had not told from the third book yet. Even at the end of season five, I look at the third book and there's still, I mean, we still have a wall of just wish list items that we wish we could cross off. Um, And that are from the books and that we want to uh, explore if possible. So, and, and I, I definitely think that I, I had the occasion to reread the third book before season five and it's just so rich and there's so much depth mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. Um, you could tell multiple seasons of a television show just using the raw material that book provides. 
Well, I'm excited to see it. Um, so one other question that we, we ask a lot of people, it, it's so nice. We just, we haven't had new people on our, sh- new people on our show for a while. And then this season, we're finally getting to have people who we haven't on be- had on before. Um, but you sort of spoke to this a little bit about how you got involved with the show, but I'm curious about like, what have your journeys been with the show? Because I, right. Like you just mentioned that Jay started out as, uh, John's assistant, was it? Mm-hmm. And now you've written three episodes together. Like, talk talk to us about that. I mean, it was uh, it was a really sort of incredible thing. Um, so Jay and I went to film school together in Prague. We both went. That's I went awesome. to Penn State for undergrad. He went to Tulane, and we went abroad to this uh, six month uh, film program. And there were twenty or thirty of us. And Jay and I, I guess, first bonded watching Game of Thrones, which had just came out that spring. And so we like probably illegally pirated it from some Czech website and, uh, <laughs> you know, and uh, watched me. it on some lap, you know, laptop and inadequate, but loved it, you know, bonded to all law enforcement it. agencies. This is not a confession. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, just comedy. Um, but bonded over our love of fantasy. And um, then we went back to college, had our senior years and we're, you know, ostensibly going our separate ways except that we then both ended up in LA, both going from show to show, working as assistants to producers, directors. Um, and I worked for, as the assistant to a director, I got into a writer's room, thought I was going to get staffed. Um, this was in like 2014. And then the show got canceled. It was a big NBC mm-hmm. show supposed to go for seven seasons, got canceled. Um, what luckily, show was that? It was a show called state of affairs. Um, it was a Katherine Heigl show. It was like a CIA drama. They were mm-hmm. touting it as the next, you know, NBC's homeland. Um, they had all their eggs in this basket. Uh, it was very exciting. A lot of attention on the show from the network perspective totally blew up. Um, and then while that was happening, Jay was on this uh, this pilot, um, mm-hmm. this, 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 this interesting fantasy pilot. And uh, he was sort of like showing me little, you know, little clips of this this kid, you know, this actor, Jason Ralph, who I'd like never really seen before stepping into fantasy land. And I was like, holy shit, like this is I want to be on this show. And um, like I said, like, luckily, there was a script coordinator position that opened up. I had sort of done the job as an assistant who was like doing eight jobs at once. And um, luckily, Jay vouched for me and that got me the job. We worked on the show for a few years, and Jay, feel free to take over. And yeah, I, I think that the it's definitely a great. That's the story of how we got there. I think the journey of being there is one of absolute um, creative support from the higher ups in our writers' room. Um, Alex was a script coordinator. I was an assistant. We were really excited to be in the same office as each other because. We had other projects outside of the magicians that we were pursuing. Um, Alex and I wrote a feature together, um, mostly because we were young. We didn't have very much money. We had a lot of passion. We had a lot of creative energy. And we figured two heads better than one. Our resources pulled together. Maybe we could make something happen. And um, we did. You know, Alex directed a short film. I directed a short film. We wrote a feature. Um, we wrote a pilot together. And throughout that entire experience were Sarah, Henry, and John, especially because he was my direct report, just saying, 
them off work if you need to. Shoot your pilot. I, uh, sorry, shoot your short film. Write your pilot. Do the research you need to do. Um, take these creative risks. And not only are we going to let you do it, but we're going to notice that you're doing it. We're going to respect you for it. And if you've got a piece of material, we want to look at it. And it was, um, it really didn't come out of us. Our promotion to writers didn't come out of us um, begging for it. It came out of them um, deciding that we had the creative output and the creative energy and, and that they wanted us to, to take that next step with them. And they wanted to, they wanted to show us, I guess, how the adults do it. They were amazing mentors. They would, I mean, they would read our, our little crappy little short scripts and help with our cuts. You know, we would show them um, the rough cuts of our shorts and we would sit in the writer's room at lunch and people would uh, would suggest edits and things like, we had like the resources of like the magician's writer's room, like for our yeah. little personal projects. That's incredible. And, and I, it was amazing. It was amazing. And I think that, that they saw us as people who were, who were really passionate creatively and then of course like dating back to like the opening title sequence like jay was always pitching ideas like we're just the kind of guys who like can't keep our fucking mouths shut um and <laughs> am i allowed to curse by the way oh yeah absolutely yes. we encourage it fantastic <laughs> well we get eight i think we get 10 fucks an episode on the show you so get as many want. as you want on this podcast we'll just keep it to 10 maybe <laughs> just for out of respect for the show <laughs> not so often on the show um, yeah you know, we had a spare office um, in the magician's writer's room that John and Sarah and Henry let us take over for the editor for Alex's short film just came into the office and took over the spare office. And then on my short film, Rita Sanders, who's an incredibly talented editor um, who worked on early seasons of the magicians and then moved over to you on Netflix, which is Sarah Gamble's other yeah. show. Um, mm-hmm. She actually cut together my short film um, and basically, you know, made it worth watching. Um, so it was just this wonderful, creative, almost like it, a communal atmosphere where everyone was just helping each other. I mean, John's current assistant, Kirsten, is writing scripts right now. So is Dylan. So is Chris. I, I, everyone. Um, yeah, I remember Al Litson, uh, who wrote yeah. episode seven of yep. this year and about a gazillion other episodes, did uh, this really funny web series uh, about actors in L.A., I think like season one or season two, which just their start in it. It was great. Yeah. yeah, it was like I think that they they noticed that they just, I think, appreciate people who take the initiative. And and we were constantly even from assistant and script coordinator roles, like having th- ha- sort of trying to keep track of the mythology. That's something that Jay and I always were really passionate about, about tracking um, the flow of magic. There was one season when we um, when we went in there and we drew up, I say we, Jay, this <laughs> chart of, um, of how magic flowed from the wellspring to the rest of the world. The library was going to regulate and change that flow. You know, we had to, we just personally were sitting in our office and we're like, mm-hmm. we don't know what the fuck is happening with magic this season? I think it was beginning of season four. Um, and we were like, how do we explain uh, what's going on? Well, how do you even pitch, you know, how do you pitch when you don't know what the rules are? Yeah. So well, that was sort of the first. It was like, we want to come into the room with pitches ready to go. We want to we want to have ideas, but we need the foundation on which to have those ideas. So mm-hmm. that's sort of where the... It was it was an opportunity, I think, for us to to organize, to understand, and then ultimately to share with the room um, what we came up with. And luckily, it became sort of 
it became a good square one for everyone to start from. Now we understand exactly how the library controls magic, the flow of magic Mm -hmm. in season four. And so we're going to be able to build story off of that. We did the same thing season five, as far as the 300 year time jump in Fillory, it was how exactly did time slip forward? Why didn't it affect earth? Could you send bunnies back and forth? It's a question that's answered in, in episode one of season five. And it was just sort of like, let's figure out how that, time jump works so that we know, even if we don't necessarily tell the audience everything, we know what we're pitching on and, and what stories we can tell and what stories we can't. Jay, I feel like I, we, I've never known so quickly and with so much certainty that someone is a Ravenclaw as hearing you talk. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. I get Slytherin most of all. <laughs> A lot of Slytherin, but I think that that's because of uh, Jay is known in the room as a as the punster extraordinaire. He's just all about the puns and just gets a lot of a lot of crap for it, like a lot of real a lot of dad jokes. I think you know, garden variety homicide is a, mm-hmm. is just a big fat dad joke pun. Um, <laughs> but that's I think where the Slytherin reputation comes. It's like people are jealous of his um, his wordsmith abilities. I do it for the groans. You know. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're, we're both slither claws, so we we know what it's like to be like both. Fair enough. <laughs> um, so I just want to ask you guys one more question before we move on to the episode. What characters in the book, the show, do you feel like you identify with most? I mean, it's tough not to say... I think I was I was talking to you earlier about this. It's tough for me, at least, not to say that I don't identify very closely with Quentin as like a depressed twenty-something white guy from Bergen County, New Jersey, coming <laughs> to terms with his dream not being exactly what he wanted it to be. You know, Hollywood sort of being my fillery. Um, the story really hits very, very close to home, and I've always really identified with it. Uh, Jason just brought that character to life so beautifully throughout throughout the show, um, and I think that you know, there's the moment in book one where like they've sort of graduated and they've got everything they want, and they're they're hanging in New York, and like, but nothing is enough for them. And I think that that mm-hmm. there's there's no fantasy book that gets to that real emotional place like The Magicians does. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. Quentin just embodies. I think I think so many people can identify. Even love Elliot, people love Margo. But the entry point to the show was Quentin from the beginning. So I think that everybody, yeah. on some level, um, really identifies with Quentin. And I know that I do. For my part, uh, it's Penny. It's it's the show's version of Penny more probably than the book version of Penny. But I I definitely I think I appreciate the way that Penny is often incredibly confident in in the way he goes about things, even though ultimately he needs to stop and he needs to think a little bit more before he makes an impulsive decision. Um, I definitely appreciate his uh, his tendency to fuck off from a problem rather than confront a problem directly. And um, I also just think that he's just way too much fun to write. He's just really, really (laughs) fun to write because he can be incredibly emotionally present and he can be completely cold and dismissive. And Mm -hmm. those two things are completely in concert with one another. He's an amazing friend to Quentin through the first four seasons. He's also... Quentin's best foil through the first four seasons. Mm-hmm. And he's that way with a lot of characters, a lot of characters. 
Jay also wears scarves and doesn't wear <laughs> his shirts. And so that's really why he's like Penny. <laughs> and he loves traveling. That's actually true. <laughs> yeah, I really loved the touch of uh, it being Penny 40 that brought Quentin in, into the underworld and mm-hmm. onto the other side because they're just two sides of the same coin. And we've always talked about that a lot. Mm. There's your dad. They are. Yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> I think it's maybe fitting that uh, that that it's a Penny and uh, Quentin relationship that is this writer's team. <laughs> Very. All right. Let's move on to the episode. Clara, you want to give us a recap? Don't I always want to give us a recap? Um, okay. After discovering what Seb is doing with the takers, the magicians decide to take him out. Um like mob style. Elliot is best situated to get all stabby stabby, but he's understandably reluctant because, you know, uh, Seb is all hotty hotty. So Margot hatches a plan to keep his hands clean, sort of. Margot and Elliot swap bodies, and Elliot and Margot's body heads off with Josh to sever the conduit that's keeping Seb, al- Seb alive, while Margot in Elliot's body stays behind with Fen and pregnant Julia. Um, <laughs> Owen Charlton is there, uh, like hanging out in. Uh, well, I would say in Elliot's head, but it's attached to Elliot's body, apparently not his mind, so Margot gets him. Anyway, Charlton is there. Things get complicated relationship-wise when Josh tries to engage Margot Reed Elliot to find out why she left them behind, and Seb and Elliot Reed Margot come to a mutual understanding. Meanwhile, in Breakables, Alex, Bax, and Penny accidentally unleash a fungal infection on the student body, creating a horde of zombies desperate to get their hand on the plant page um, that Alice found in Quentin's drawer. A little quick thinking on Alice's part, as well as some bonding time with Bax, saves the day. When the effects of Penny's infection wear off, because he got infected, he tells them that the fungus among us wanted the page to appease someone or something called the couple. Back in Fillory, Elliot and Margot swap back into their own bodies, and Seb comes back from the dead. And that's where the episode ends. So, Danny, what'd you think? Uh, well, I mean, fuck. Like, I'm going to be honest here. I'm with Elle here. I really like Sebastian. I think he's super complicated and complex character. And then, of course, also my theory about him being Rupert Chatwin also lends a lot to this. I was devastated to see him die, even though I knew it wouldn't stick. It's never that easy. I, like Elliot, immediately missed him after Julia became a Kingslayer. Stop fake killing characters that I love, please. Um, (laughs) No problems. (laughs) All that to say, I loved this episode so much. Obviously, it's set up for a lot of big plots that will unfold. The body swap was great. I loved what the actors did with it. Hale and Summer are very talented. And Charlton is also just really funny. Um, he's such a fun addition to the cast that I really just didn't know that I needed. Uh, I figured the Julia pregnancy twist would be a thing early on. I don't know how I feel about it just yet, um, but I think Julia would make a great mom. I don't know Even if she's ready Julia, for so. it. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I don't know if she's ready to be a mom, but I could... Maybe I feel like it would give her a sense of fulfillment because she, I feel like she has this big void that she's filled with like going on adventures and trying to save the world. Um, and I also have five bucks on it that she's going to name her baby Quentin. Um, <laughs> um, but I loved this episode. I felt like it had a really campy like Buffy vibe going on and I liked it a lot. Well, thank you. <laughs> 
I, I thought this was a really fun episode, too. The zombie fungus plotline gives us this kind of, like, monster of the week kind of thing going on. And, uh, like, a quickly dispatched enemy that helps move the plot along, but also brings some of the characters closer together. While the Florian plotline... Plot line, I actually... You, you were saying it sets up a lot of stuff, but what I really liked about it was that I feel like I sensed the shift in this episode from everything being set up to starting to resolve very slowly some of the storylines, mm-hmm. which makes sense. I mean, it's the it's the first episode after the midpoint. Um, so, yeah, it makes sense that we would be starting to try to, like, pay some of those things off. Um, I also, I mean, I'm always in for a good Freaky Friday moment. Um, and watching Hale do his best Summer impression and Summer do her best Hale impression would be enough by itself to make this episode worth watching. But the added twist of Margot having to contend with Charlton, who helps her to see the ways that she hasn't really been seeing Elliot, is what really made it sing for me. Um, so yeah, y'all, Alex and Jay, talk to us about how these elements all came together. How did these elements come together? Well, I think that the idea of a body swap had been pitched around the magician's room a bunch of times. And uh, I think that the thinking was that if we were going to do it with anyone, it would have to be with Margot and Elliot. Uh-huh. And I guess it presented itself, the, you know, so sometimes at the beginning of the season, we come in and we are like, this is a thing we're going to do. We're going to do this body swap. We're going to do this storyline. Sometimes uh, the story just sort of happens. Um, and I think that in this case, there was this natural progression of the end of episode seven. We find out, you know, what that that Seb is doing something that sure seems like it's evil. You know, so the situation is. The Dark King needs to die. Uh, Elliot's the one with the access, but emotionally, you know, it became so clear as we were developing these characters, Seb and Elliot and their relationship, that Elliot would not be the one to pull the trigger, that he couldn't. But that that might be a really interesting sort of crux emotionally for Mm. the episode, and that that presented a dramatic opportunity, that he would need somebody else to do it, but that nobody else could do it. And so... Always in the back of our minds, like, when can we do it? When can we fit in this uh, a body swap? And that sort of became the solution of mm-hmm. the guy who has the access doesn't have the will. The one who has the will doesn't have the access. So very quickly, Alex and I put together this card. And once <laughs> it was written, it could not be undone. <laughs> That's a card. Wow. <laughs> I was wondering yeah, where you went. <laughs> This is uh, Elliot's color card, and this is Margo's color card. If this is just an audio podcast, I'm holding up two I cards together. I took a picture. Together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so we 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 knew that this. I think that the um, that ups had came in and said, "This is the episode where we try to kill the Dark King, uh, and we fail, and we go through with it. We end up physically him." but he comes back to life at the end of the episode. That was sort of the mandate. And the question that they left us with is how does that happen? And Mm -hmm. what is the emotional through line? Why do we care about watching it happen or not happen? And so the thought was body swap. Um, Mm -hmm. But it was, I think, very tough to get it through because the idea of a body swap is a little campy. You think of Lindsay Lohan, like it's a little bit silly. And the magicians at its heart, like we do silly things, but it's a really serious show, especially coming off the end of episode seven, the beginning of our episode, uh, there's a bunch of children who are taken. And that's an incredibly serious, it's played as an awful thing. I mean, Josh makes bar mitzvah, but it's a, it's a serious thing. Um, And so, you know, how do you take that seriously 
and still um, be fair with the fact that Elliot kind of loves this guy. Um, it's a writing challenge. It's also a production challenge. The the while. 508 is prepping, 507 is still shooting. So there's not a lot of rehearsal time. Mm. We were aided by the fact, um, well, we were aided by a few things. The first thing that we were aided by is that Summer and Hale are great friends in real life. Um, so they know each other really well. The second thing we're aided by is they're both consummate professionals and super talented. And so they found the time in their spare time to go together and to rehearse even to come to um, to take a break from set and come to our prep meetings and rehearse uh, with us. And then the other thing that we were aided by is that we knew going into the episode that we had Jamie Conway directing. Um, and Jamie's directed quite a few episodes uh, for The Magicians, one of which is All That Josh, which was um, Alex and my first right. episode together. Um, so we had worked with Jamie before. Everyone knew that Jamie could pull off a very logistically difficult episode. The cast respected him and the crew respected him. And so I think that settled a lot of nerves as far as is this achievable mm. on the time frame of television? I think that it's easier in a movie to do a body swap because you're meeting the characters for the very first time 10 minutes before the body swap actually happens. Freaky yeah. Friday, you only have a right. few scenes to get to know Lindsay Lohan and Jamie Lee Curtis's characters. You don't um, know how they brush their teeth. You don't know in the how middle of, gone. Yeah. In the middle of season five of a television show, you know Elliot's mannerisms. You know Margot's well, mannerisms. And that's one of it's my difficult. favorite things like that made this so successful. Like uh, Hale giving Summers, giving like a the Margot stance in the throne room, like one yes. foot, <laughs> you know, one foot sort of uh, like tiptoed and the other one not. And that being a giveaway, mm -hmm. I mean, that and a lot of other mannerisms being a giveaway to Seb that like he was not himself or whatever. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, mm -hmm. the tricky thing about it is that it's not even just a body swap. It's a body swap where each character, as in most body swaps, are pretending to be the other one. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. they know each other really well. So there's, there's, but we were really lucky that Hale and Summer, basic, and you know, Jamie Conway would go in there and say, uh, give me 100% Elliot. Now give me 70% Elliot. Now give me, mm. like, you're doing a really bad job at acting like Elliot. Now give me, you're doing <laughs> a really fucking good job at acting like Elliot. Um, and we went into the editing room with all of those options. Luckily, they were able to actually hit all of those options. Re really kind of hard direction to take. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, but we were able to craft it. And I think that even in the editing room, there were a lot of versions of these scenes where, um, you know, where Elliot's performance as Margot was better or worse. Mm -hmm. And it took a lot of fine tuning to get that to the right point where it was funny when it was supposed to be funny. You took it seriously when you needed to take it seriously. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, we'll get more into the body spot body swap specifics oh that's hard to say uh a little bit later yeah. <laughs> but um i wanted to get back to something that you mentioned earlier which is I, I really love the way that this season has incorporated so many different elements from the third books like we have plum the whales wharton plant mm -hmm. and now the couple um but one of the things that i like uh about the show in general is that the elements that come from the book aren't always combined in the same ways that they're combined in the books so Sometimes they can signal that, uh, like, sometimes they're a giveaway that something is going to happen where, like, Danny and I will know it because we've read the books. And sometimes they're red herrings, like, just as often, I think. So, yeah, what the fuck, guys? 
<laughs> it's uh, it's everything's a remix, right? And the magicians, the television show is no different. I think um, I when when you talk about that, my mind immediately goes to the character of Bax and also the character mm-hmm. of Ray because I'm maybe you knew this already, but Ray has a a series of lines of dialogue with Alice yes. in one of the scenes in Five Hundred Eight that are Bax's that is in the books ripped out of the books. Yeah, and it was Bax and Quentin actually becoming mm-hmm. friends in the book mm-hmm. in that scene. And we used it where Ray and Alice were becoming enemies with one another <laughs> using the same dialogue, um, <laughs> which is just a credit, I think, to um, context and to acting ability that you can take the same line of dialogue and have it mean something completely different. Mm. But Lev was Lev was actually on set that day um, and was just sort of like, wait a second. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, this dialogue sounds really good. Who wrote it? And we're like, actually, you read it. Yeah. <laughs> on that. We have a portion of our residuals. That's great. Um, but yeah, I think uh, I think that that's true. I think we we know that the audience comes in with a certain expectation. There's a reason why reveal Plum was Plum until a few episodes in, because we knew the second we said Plum, there was going to be all of this expectation surrounding her character, and we wanted to establish her as our character before we brought that into it. Well, you succeeded. You threw us off, and Danny has been waiting for Plum for five seasons. (laughs) (laughs) Trust me, we all have. Plum has been on our our wish list wall for five seasons. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, you guys just completely, you know, abandoned her for the last couple episodes. So <laughs> you're just like leaving that in our minds. <laughs> <laughs> that has to do with the realities of, uh, you know, deals that we make with actors. Or, and some of that has to do with the fact that we have a cast of it feels like a cast of thousands that we have yeah, to do really credit to. So uh, there's just only so much story you can tell in 45 minutes. This episode basically has two parts. The Break Bill's fungus zombie plot and the Florian murder slash body swap plot. What do you guys want to start with? Um, let's talk about fungus first. Right. Otherwise, it's, it'll get short shrift, I think. <laughs> um, okay, so then zombies, z- zombie fungus. Oh, God, I can't say that. <laughs> okay, <laughs> zombie fungus. Tell us, first of all, just like how did you come up with the zombie fungus idea? It I mean, was... Uh, Go for it. What I was just going to say is I knew that we wanted, I mean, there was this element of the world seed that we knew we had to get Mm -hmm. to. I think that one of the mandates, like they came in and they said, we're killing Seb in this episode. They said, um, we are going to learn that, uh, spoiler alert, uh, this page uh, depicts the world seed um, and, you know, blah, 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 powers and what it can do and um and we were like, that seems like that suggests that it be a cool, botanical, you know, interesting look into magical botany kind of. So we started with the world. Mm-hmm. Um, also wanting to continue the story of Allison Bax, this magical botanist. That felt like a rich place to explore, especially with Alice going through this sort of grief arc. Um, mm-hmm. You know, having her connect with somebody else that has a shared experience that has lost somebody and mm. lost one recently. Mm-hmm. Um, that mm-hmm. was a story we really wanted to tell. Uh, I think it all, before we even 
monsters and mushrooms and whatever, there was like this pitch from, I think it was Henry Alonzo Myers, just about this emotional conversation that Alice and Bax have about shared trauma and about how they think that you get through grief. And that was mm-hmm. the heart of the story. And then all the fun and the mushrooms, you know, came all in later. Fungus. Uh, yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Actually, uh, Ray's original name was Gus. And uh, that was a little bit too funny for people. So. <laughs> um, yeah, the uh, I, I it was it definitely started from this place of let's let's talk about this interesting little niche um, in the world of magic that is botany. I, I think that Stoppard is this awesome little peek behind the curtain of what time magic is like. Mm. Um, and let's use Bax to peek behind the curtain and see what plant magic is like. Um, and we were coming right off 507 where Alice and Bax sort of become scene partners in a lot of these and throughout the episode. And it was like, how can we develop that story more? Where can we take that story? Well, so jumping jumping off from that, I really like that the solution to the whole zombie fungus problem comes from this conversation that Alex and Bax have about the nature of grief, about how it gets quieter with time because it sort of spreads out. Um, and when we had Henry on for the premiere episode this season, one of the things he said was that, like, the big thing the magicians is always trying to do that you guys as writers are always trying to do is connect these sort of emotional threads with what's happening with magic and the monsters and this season that the sort of emotional thread is grief. Um, so I, I mean, I really thought that was such a, like in this episode, it, it was really clear to me. And I feel like Alice in that conversation, part of it is not just her connecting with Bax, but also like through that regaining some of her confidence in this episode. Mm-hmm. So I was curious to hear you talk about her emotional journey and like where you think she is in that. I mean, I think that it's uh, it's an interesting question. She, how do you get over the death of somebody she was as close to as Quentin? Uh, and she's she's sort of trying a whole bunch of different ways. You know, she. Uh, she brings up a golem of him. She tries to send that back down to the underworld. She's left with this page. She's still sort of, she's trying to investigate, you know, is there anything unfinished of his that I I think that she's still very much clinging to his spirit and like his being, even if he's not physically there, then there's this character of Bax that comes in and, you know, especially watching 507, they've got this great chemistry. That first scene Mm -hmm. when he's like, Mm -hmm. well, that's definitely a mistake. Like, that's going to make for a terrible steak. Um, like, there's just this sexy energy between them. But but I think that, you know, there's a bit of, we talk a lot in the room about, you know, we'll pitch romantic storylines. And I know that Sarah is one of the people that always uh, is real, really tries to be very honest about it. You know, we want, because it's a TV show, our characters to hook up. We want them to have relationships. It's fun to watch. Are our characters ready for that yet? Um, mm. And I think that that was there was a version of this story with Bax where like Alison Bax hook up at the end, I think was maybe even a card on the board. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think at the end of this story, it was more important for them to have an emotional connection. And that that is such a step for Alice that she is ready to have an emotional connection with a new person. Mm -hmm. That is a guy that isn't somebody that she already knows Mm -hmm. that she's, Mm -hmm. that she's able to make a new connection with a human being. Uh, is exciting for her. And I think that that was really smart of Sarah to hammer down on it and, and make sure that 
it's not about sex. You know, it can be about an intimate relationship between a man and a woman. There's nothing to do with sex, even if they are both very attractive. Um, I think that that's absolutely right. I think it's, it's telling that Alice is able to make a new friend. Um, I, the, as far as where this is on the spectrum of her arc, um, without talking about where she's going, I think we look at episode three and we see episode three, which is her and Elliot on the mountain, putting Quentin's essence back in the underworld. And we see that as Quentin accepting his death. And we tried to, uh, I'm sorry, Alice accepting Quentin's death. We tried to, in episode eight, take the perspective of, of this episode where Alice was accepting her grief over mm. Quentin's death. Um, yeah. It's one thing to put someone to rest and to acknowledge that they're not coming back. It's another thing to understand, I am now going to live with this yeah. feeling for the for possibly if not the rest of my life for a significant portion of my life going forward. I think it was a revelation for all of us in the room when we realized that just because Alice has put Quentin's spirit away and she's accepted his death, that there was still a long tail to her emotions on how she felt about that, that there was an expectation on her part that once she did that, her journey would finally be over. She would be finally free and, and, a lot of story to tell as she struggled with the fact that that's just not the case with grief. Mm. Um, it was cool to to know Bax's backstory from Henry. He just had this gut instinct, I think, with Bax for like ages ago that Bax had a wife that passed away. And mm. to, to, to see that as a lens through which we could examine what Alice was going through and that her story actually was not over. We'll probably have to ask him about that. That sounds really interesting. I think that the whole, like, Alice Bax's part of it was my favorite part of the plot thread. Like, I love their budding relationship that they, they seem to have. And I think one of my favorite parts of it is when he tells her that it gets quieter. And I, I like tell her that it gets better. Because, like, right. I hate when people tell you it gets better. Right. Like, so it was really nice to have that. And, I, I mean, I just, like, want to see Alice, like, Happy-ish again. So. <laughs> we do too. I do, Happy in her I own do like that. Way. I like their. Yeah, I like their relationship. I feel like he's a lot like Alice. They're both very confident, but he also challenges her. He's very light. I mean, Aaron uh, Taylor Jennings as an actor is very, very light and fun. And I think that, that it, you know what Alice is going through is so serious, and mm -hmm. the the deal with magic and circumstances is so serious. Um, but Aaron comes in and he's like, Bax is talking about stakes and like, he's yelling at her for like moving his plants. And like, it's just, I think that they have like this interesting contrast and which creates a very interesting chemistry. And it makes it a surprise to learn that he is also living with grief. Yeah. And it's, I think is there's mm -hmm. a little bit of hope there that you can live with grief and still have that bounce in your step. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then, you know, the other, the other Thing that's appealing about that story for us at least as writers is we got to do all this just absolutely crazy you know the school is infested with fungus um <laughs> yeah yeah well and you, you carry and, that phytosymbionts right penny doesn't <laughs> penny doesn't handle it all super well and i know you had some thoughts about that danny yeah penny is literally the worst acting <laughs> dean and i mean i obviously i love it because you're it with psycho fog. hilarious storyline <laughs> but 
Penny's usually actually pretty right with his gut feeling, so I feel like he should have shut that down, like, right away. Like, he should have just stuck to his guns and been like, nope, he's not coming. Um, you know who and I feel like... What was that? Oh, it, <laughs> Penny, Penny wouldn't allow, heard. like, Ray. Uh, no, he wouldn't I, allow I, Ray to come. Penny, I think, is harder on himself than you are on him. I think that he really <laughs> regrets letting Ray into that school. It really came from a place, I feel like, of him caring about Alice and what she needed. Mm-hmm. So I thought it was really sweet at the same time. Sweet, but stupid. <laughs> yeah, stupid. <laughs> I think that there was a lot of um, a lot of sweet. And certainly the moment, you know, Alice is saying, please let this guy in. It's about this page. And Penny's not going to do it until she confesses to him. And I think that it's that look, Alice and Penny have had a very sort of interesting relationship over the run of the show. They're not, I would say, close, but the fact that she, that it means so much to her that she's going to, you know, confide in him with the secret that this page she's been carrying around is this sort of residual grief over Quentin. Mm -hmm. I think that's, you know, what turns him. I also think that there's a little bit of an ego thing in there, you know, because he's, he's just like, oh, I have the permission to do it, you know, let's do it. (laughs) And that he probably is running off of like 30 minutes sleep off of 507, uh, oh yeah, and like meth withdrawal <laughs> or whatever. Right. Yeah. <laughs> whatever it was. But certainly his poor decision making makes uh, the scene with Dean Fogg like the best. It's just so much fun to shoot. I mean, it was it was like half half a day, maybe even less of shooting, and it was just like the amount of of flavor that Fogg and Penny bring to that scene, where Fogg is in prison and is just so judgmental of Penny's. Dean decision making skills. Oh yeah. Um I, I I think that Arjun and Rick um played that scene in three different ways and each one was like an amazing way. One was Penny doesn't give a flying fuck what Dean Fogg thinks. The other was Penny's completely the other was Penny's completely um paranoid that something even worse is gonna happen. It was just it was really, really cool to sort of see acting Dean versus Dean. Yeah. The end of that plot thread, I feel like, doesn't bode very well for Alice. What do you mean by that? I mean, now the couple, I'm quoting that, knows who she is. And that sounds really scary. She's an amazing magician, but I think she's going to need a lot of help again. And I really, and it really does make me wonder, like, how the fuck did Quentin come across the page in the show and successfully kept it? Big question, though. (laughs) Big question, though. Who do you think the couple is? Okay, so I have a lot of ideas about this. And I, I, you know, I've been, like, texting you a new thought about this every other day. Um, I definitely think it's somebody we already know. Last week I told you I thought it might be Marina and her girlfriend, who I still think we have already seen this season and just don't know who she is yet. Um, And I still think that's a decent possibility. But something in this episode keyed me into another idea. So Penny says the couple has been looking for the page for a really long time, which could be just like a few years, but for a collective fungal consciousness, I have a feeling it's more like a few lifetimes. And that made me think about the Dark King and how Elliot and Alice found him pining over his long-dead ex-lover on the Mountain of Ghosts when they first ran into him. He has a lot of power, he's immortal, he's seemingly invulnerable, um, as we see by the end of this episode. And while we've been told that his lover is dead, he has enough of an obsession with dead things, or at least like dead-looking things like the Takers. I mean, they come up out of the ground. I feel like there's some 
deathiness there um, that I think there might be more to the story than that. So I kind of think the couple is the Dark King and his dead lover, which if your theory is correct about the identity of the Dark King, then that means Rupert Chatwin and Lance McAllister. And since in The Magician's Land, the couple were going after Rupert's diary and Plum thinks someone is going after her because she's a Chatwin, it kind of all fits together to me anyway. What do you think? Well, to play devil's advocate, (laughs) while I do think that the Dark King is Rupert, I feel that in my bones, I don't think he can be part of the couple. Why would he be after his own diary or this page or Plum? And how is Plum related to him? Was she, she was related to him in the book, but is she related to him in the show? We're not sure exactly what Chatwin she's related to at this point. Fair point. The only way... I could, the only way I could fit that in would be like maybe he's trying to retrieve a piece of his diary from the underworld since he threw it down the well to the underworld in who, whoever yeah. knows who knows how long ago he did that. But I feel like you're opening up a can of worms of questions. But <laughs> as for the couple, I still feel like I like your previous theory of it being Marina and whomever her girlfriend is, or maybe it's Hades and another goddess. Well, Clarion did say that, uh, did sort of make that joke about Hades earlier. Yes. And I really feel like we aren't done with the gods since Fillory apparently is godless after all. All interesting theories. Alex, Jay, anything to add? Or are we going to get some more tight-lipped writer smiles? We actually already got one (laughs) while I was saying that. (laughs) Uh, I don't know. Interesting theories. You guys should be writers. Um, yeah, I think that. I guess what I will say is that <laughs> um, it's very tempting to make everything weave together in this tight little bow. I would caution you from getting too tiny town with it. If every character is doing everything, then there's then there's the world doesn't feel big anymore. You know what I mean? <laughs> Well, that sort of, I was telling you, Danny, was it last episode that we were talking about how, like, Julia has been wrong about the quest every time? And she makes another comment this Mm -hmm. episode about how, like, well, duh, like, the takers sound like the invading external force, which 100% made me think that they are not the invading external force. (laughs) Exactly. I feel like she's wrong again. (laughs) Who knows? I didn't read any scripts after 508. (laughs) The takers are certainly invading in 508. That's certainly an issue. The end of 507, you see them. For sure, Um, but that doesn't mean that they're the right force. She's right. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) Um, So we we should go to the body swap. And the first thing I have to ask, of course, is how many takes did you have to get of that first scene with Margot and Elliot swapping bodies before everybody stopped cracking up? (laughs) Um, God. We, uh, I think we had the benefit of rehearsal, so <laughs> we did a lot of laughing during rehearsal. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's just nothing better than watching our director, Jamie, sit there behind the monitor as he's watching the take going. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> possibly can. I think that's literally the face that he makes when he's like about to die of laughter. <laughs> I love the way that Margot talks as Elliot when she's Elliot, like the way, uh, she freaks out when she discovers Charlton and she says, I don't need a Tyler Durden up my cooch. That was probably <laughs> my 
favorite mess to Fight Club that I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> I also just love their uh, respective love interests immediately noticing that something's off about them. Yeah, and I also love that it takes them a while to get the other person right. Like, they're such close friends and they know each other so well, but there's also a lot that they have blinders to about each other. And some of that is, like, gendered presentation. Um, like, you were mentioning in your notes, like, Margot's such a badass, but as Elliot, her posture still comes off as flamboyant and unrealistic because she's a badass with female... She's a female-presenting badass. And how Elliot struggles mm-hmm. to be as emotionally detached as Margot is and only really manages to channel her when he has to do kind of something that she has to do on a regular basis, which is protect them. Um, And so that like, that's when he really gets her fierceness and her walls. Um, We give a lot of credit to the performers, Mm -hmm. but also this seems really hard to write. Like it can't just be as simple as writing lines for Elliot and then putting Margot's name on them. Right. No, not at all. Certainly not. I mean, there is the, like we talked about earlier, there's the idea that they are, performing as their best friends who they know really well. Mm-hmm. And yet for the purposes of the scene to work well, you know, some of the best moments in any in body swap stories or when they slip up and the other person looks at them like you're acting weird. Um, mm-hmm. And so you need that, you know, for the scenes to be fun. But I mean, the actors just, did, just had so much fun with it. And it was fun to see, like you said, their interpretations of, you know, Hale's interpretation of how Summer acts and Summer's interpretation mm-hmm. of how Hale acts, to see them react to that actually and be like, that's not, that's not how I act, you know? <laughs> they sort of, there was a bit of coaching each other um, beforehand in the rehearsals and on set. You know, there was a day when they were together and the body swap happened. Um, and they had the benefit of sort of parroting the lines back and forth to each other, which sometimes was helpful and sometimes not. And sometimes like, it actually made them freeze up a bit and they had to just get a little bit more natural and let the other one play the other one's role. Um, It's a complicated thing. I don't think that we really understood how complicated performance was. It would be until we got on set, but luckily it was sort of up to Summer and Hale and Jamie at that point to, to make it work. Um, I I think it's also the, the challenge of writing an episode like this is you can fall into the first time writer trap, which is, I, I, you definitely have imposter syndrome when you're writing on a show that you are a huge fan of just like casually on your own. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think when Alex and I both experienced this, that you get there, it's your first script, it's season three, you've watched two and a half seasons of the show at that point, and you start to tar- type Margot lines. And everything that comes out of Margot's mouth is a Margoism. And everything that comes out of Elliot's mouth is an Elliotism. And, you know, Quentin is Quentin. And you're just like, it's all like, it's so um, extreme because that's what you remember as far as Mm -hmm. voice goes. Like when you think of Margot, you think of her like, you know, Jesus based on the novel Christ by Sapphire, like stuff (laughs) like that. More than you think about the sort of more subdued emotional stuff that she can absolutely bring to the table. And it's really tempting to write towards the cliche Margot, the cliche Elliot. Mm. You have that same problem in a body swap episode. Um, A, you want everyone to know who's watching immediately when they look at Hale, that that's not Elliot. And you want everyone immediately when they look at Summer, that that's not Margot. So you Mm. start to put like way too much Margot into Hale's mouth and you start to put way too much Elliot into Summer's mouth and it can become really extreme. And I think that was a, uh, also a struggle with performance Mm. is that 
are you doing justice to the story, which is a story where Elliot is pretending uh, to be Margot to the best of his ability, and Margot is pretending to be Elliot to the best of her ability. And actually, what it took was a lot of combing through and re- lifting a lot of jokes and pulling back and making sure that they were playing grounded versions of themselves. And I think we hit the sweet spot. Usually we hit the sweet spot when the scene, um, when they were really good at acting each other. Mm-hmm. Um, personally, I think that when Summer just completely dresses down Josh mm-hmm. um, and she's, she's Elliot and she's fully Elliot, but everything that comes out of her mouth sounds like Margot. Mm-hmm. When she's like, stop mm-hmm. asking me to apologize for something that I don't feel sorry about. And it's one of those things where Elliot is trying to give Josh an understanding of his insight mm. into the mind of Margot, but it just comes off as pure Margot. There's, the, there's that other line in there where he says something like, um, it's the one where he slips up, where he says something like, you're never going to fix Margot. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean is, me. Yeah. Yes, I mean me, exactly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but that's really, like, I think that is the sort of, the, like, click moment where you can see that, yeah, this is Elliot explaining Margot to Josh. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Just doing it very well in her voice. Yeah, and, it, and and if you were to just read it on the page, it wouldn't necessarily, other than the little I mean me part, it yeah. wouldn't necessarily feel like a body swap scene on the page. Mm-hmm. Um, and the and it was sort of trusting the performance and trusting the context of the scenes that came before it to do the heavy lifting for you and not overwriting the body swap into every scene. Still having fun with the fact that we're doing a body swap episode. So both before and during the body swap, I really like the role that Charlton plays in making Elliot deal with his shit. He's on him to tell Margot about how he really feels about killing Seb, and he wants to save him that pain, and it's really poignant. He also gets that Elliot is acting in his self-interest by not opening up to his best friend. And then when they do swap bodies, he's the driving force behind Margot's success. So he acts very judgy. He's the one who pushes them towards empathy. But I'm curious, how long can he really stick around? Is he going to be a part of Elliot's psyche forever? Is he going to get a body? You don't have to tell us the exact answer, but I'd love to know if it's something that you've thought of or worked out in the writer's room or if it's going to end up being a problem for season six. Prayer circle for season six. (laughs) Um, I think that Charlton shares your concern. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, it's interesting. I think that the character of Charlton is sort of like a little bit representative of Elliot's grief um, for what he's Mm. gone through in season four. Not just Quentin, but like the trauma with the monster. You Mm. know, it's a little bit like this memory of something that he he would rather not have. Yeah. Um, still stuck in his head. But at the same time, there were positives that came out of it. And so I think that that gives him this really complicated relationship with Charlton um, that is so rich. And obviously, Spencer is an amazing actor. And he just has great chemistry with him. He's just so funny. I mean, from the moment he we first saw him in um, at 405, I believe, mm-hmm. um, he's just hilarious. I mean, mm-hmm. and, and again, he just like, he's got this really like, in a way, I mean, he's also very light um, mm-hmm. in a way that contrasts Hale. He does a really um, good deadpan. Yeah, it's oh, very, dry. very I mean, dry. 
that moment, I just like I cannot stop laughing. A- anytime I see the moment when he uh, he pops up at the end of the scene on the throne, and he's like, <laughs> "That could have gone." Yeah, and he's just like. <laughs> <laughs> that was just like I don't even th- I don't think that we wrote like um, you know he's on the throne. I think that he just like did that in blocking, and it was got to find so a cool. place to go. <laughs> Might as yeah, well be the throne. <laughs> yeah. He could stay around forever. I, who knows? He's a yeah. fantastic actor. It brings out the. It allows you, Elliot, to talk about these deep, deep things in a way that's not just expository. Because he's talking to the guy who's like just went and binge watched that season of Elliot's <laughs> the TV show. I love that moment from Five Hundred Seven. Um, but one other thing that we should mention in this arc is Julia's pregnancy. Because Danny, you were saying you appreciate the way that the show deals with abortion and like talks about it head on. Do you want to say more about that? Yeah. Um, I mentioned earlier that I don't know exactly how I feel about her being pregnant. I do love the way that the show deals with abortion though. Like the lines of it being still an easy procedure, even in Fillory. And when Julia says it's still baking, when Fenn says there's a baby in there, the show has always done a really good job with political statements without throwing politics in your face. I also like that they bring back Fenn's feelings about her own pregnancy and losing her baby. And I think Brittany acted that so well. It was just like in her face how sad it still makes her. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think Brittany tweeted out a picture of the log baby at like some point. It was part of some joke like uh, earlier in the season. And I can't see the log baby without feeling like sad for Fen because even though that performance was so funny, I mean, she just killed it in season, it was season two, I think, with the log baby, right? Season um, three. Yeah, yeah, she did like such a great job with the log baby and made it so funny. It also just is sad. It's sad that she uh, like all she wants in life is a family and people to care about. And she got stuck with a husband who really doesn't want to be married to her. And what felt to her like, you know, when she was pregnant before and she thought she was going to finally get like at least part of that story turned out to be like taken by the fairies and then she thought that they had a baby (laughs) that they were getting that back with Freya and then that turned out to be a lie too so I just feel like she's had a lot of trauma around uh, losing that piece of her and losing that chance at motherhood and so I I agree I think it was a really smart move on y'all's part to to have her be the person who Julia goes to and to have her give that reaction that sort of calls back to it yeah the two characters are surprisingly really good together on screen. I mean, they acted mm-hmm. together in season three as well. Mm-hmm. And I really liked that. Yeah, they have great energy together. <laughs> I think uh, the I, I will say about the Julia Finn scene where they discuss pregnancy um, that we had the benefit of the brain trust on that scene from the very get go. I think it was mm-hmm. even before we had written the scripts, before we write scripts, we turn in outlines to get approved by the studio and the network. And it's sort of the proving ground for every scene. And um, the look at those outlines and basically say, is this a real scene or is this one of those bullshit scenes where there's actually no drama happening? Um, there was certainly a lot of drama happening in this scene, but the exact perspectives um, of the two characters just were not ringing true. Um, from what we had discussed in the room and put on the storyboards and then put into the outline, as we turned it into an outline, as we turned it into prose, it became clear to pretty much everyone in the room that no one was quite buying 
mm. the take that the room had come up with on Julia and Finn and and Julia's pregnancy. And so we sat down in the in after draft one of the outline, and everyone just kind of talked about what they felt um, Julia might feel, what they felt Finn might feel. Mm. We sort of it, that's sort of when Finn's past came into the discussion a little bit more. Um, we we didn't want a character to be, I, I think it would be tempting with Finn because she's kind of um, comes from a medieval setting to be very gung ho about carrying the child to term. Mm. Um, and that just didn't really ring true to who Finn was. It didn't ring true to what Fillory really is, which is yeah. mm-hmm. a place that is rather blase about um, all sorts of things and forward thinking about all sorts of things, right down to the fact that a, a female king can exist. So it was just, it was just great, honestly, to be able to rely on Sarah and John and David Reed had his uh, had a really strong perspective, um, especially the part about um, it can control you, I think, is a line that Finn says um, your pregnancy mm-hmm. can control you yeah. was a was a David Reed line. Um, Hillary and Stephanie and Elle and Alex Ritter, they everyone brought Mike Moore brought something to the table in that scene. And we were just beneficiaries, honestly. For Brittany to be able to, to swing from comedy to drama, I think is a testament to her skills as an actor, mm-hmm. Stella's skills as an actor to be able to. I mean, that's what's fun about the show is you can like make a really silly joke um, about mm-hmm. being a maid uh, in the beginning mm-hmm. of the scene, and then that. the rest of the scene you're, you're dealing with deep, real shit. Um, and you know, how does a woman react to her unexpected pregnancy? And I think that's one of the mm-hmm. joys of writing on the show. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Before we move on to fashion. I think we also have to discuss the fact that Seb doesn't actually die in this episode, which it would have been pretty lame if he had, but it's also kind of interesting. What do you think is going on, Clara? Honestly, I'm not sure, but like one thing we really get in this episode is that Seb has been alive and king of Fillory for over 300 years, and he's still not over his ex. Like We get that in the conversation between body-swapped Elliot and Margot, where Elliot and Margot's body um, makes that comment about how, like, he still thinks it's a betrayal um, that he's attracted to Elliot. And, you know, I'm sure it takes a while, a very long time, to get over the grief of a loved one. I mean, that's what a lot of the season is about. But 300 years is a really long time. That's probably longer than their entire relationship by, like, a factor of 10. (laughs) Um, So I feel like there's something else going on. And I, I mentioned this before, but I also think... There's a little bit, like, he has a little bit of a sort of death obsession. Um, And I think, you know, I had the sort of theory that maybe his ex isn't really dead or, like, he's a necromancer and he's going to somehow raise him from the dead. Um, What with the, like, takers coming out of the ground. So I I, kind of buy, like, necromancy as part of what's going on. But I don't, I honestly, like, this is all sort of me grasping at straws. What do you think, Danny? Oh, I mean... I feel like it would be a good reason to call him the Dark King, um, because necromancy is some dark shit. True. I'm just I'm just curious, like, what does he need the takers for? I feel like it's a it's way more than just keeping Fillory under his rule. Like mm-hmm. I write I really like that too, that Margot and Elliot both kind of had hearts to heart heart to hearts with him about being king because both of them understand what it's like. Um, Margot left Josh and Fenn in the past for Fillory. She also seemed to be bitching out killing him because I think she was she knew there was more to that. Mm. Um, 
but come on, it's been a really long time pining over someone for 300 years. Like Dambu, just get over it. Elliot is right there. And he's hot and he's sensitive and he's Elliot. So yeah, I'm with you there. One thing, one thing that I did want to bring up related to this that I, I thought of when I was watching this episode, like the second or third time, um, is uh, he keeps commenting that it was like he keeps saying in those heart to hearts with um, Elliot and with Margot that what he's doing with like the conduit tree and well, I guess he just says conduit. He doesn't say tree, but like what he's doing with the conduit, whatever he keeps saying it was to save Fillory. And I think like, that's a kind of important thing that we haven't really gotten into because everyone is still assuming that he's doing it for selfish reasons. And I get that. And that is my instinct too. But at least he doesn't think that it's selfish. And I think, right, like for that to be the case, because he's not stupid. He's not like so delusional. I don't think he's like super delusional. For him to think, to like believe in his heart that whatever he was doing, he was doing for Fillory. There's some part of this that we have not unwound yet um, that, yeah, I think uh, we're going to we're going to see. Yeah. So that's my thoughts. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Alex and Jay, do you guys have any other insights into the Felorian half of this episode that you want to share with us before we move on? I'd be happy to comment on some of that discussion. Yeah. Uh, Alex, do you want to, do you have anything to say about no, that? Go first? for it. Go for it. Just that um, I think where the Dark King is really juicy for us as storytellers is that um, he represents a potential future for our main characters if they don't move on. What you're saying Mm. about it's been 300 years, get over it already. I think that especially in an episode where Alice is saying to Bax, am I ever going to get over this? It's Mm. a very real Mm. experience for all of our cast members, all of our characters, this grief. And there is a sense of, I cannot begin to fathom the depths of my grief. I cannot be, I cannot see the other side of my grief. And now Elliot is talking to someone, Elliot, who is still grieving is talking to someone and Margot, who in her own way is probably still grieving or is talking to someone who still hasn't found the other end of that grief 300 years later. And I think that that makes it, I just think that it's an extra level of existential terror that Hmm. you have when you think of the dark thing and um, whether or not he's right to be feeling that way does connect to, I think, larger story machinations. He's, there's definitely a bigger plan or bigger, you know, part that he has to play in this story, um, which is why we couldn't kill him off in episode eight. Um, <laughs> <laughs> even though we understand why, why it was tempting for our characters to try. Um, but yeah, I think that essentially what he is, is he's a warning and, um, and he's a great juxtaposition. It's just, yes, it's, it's really, I, I think, I think it's really special to be, to have, have a character there that can be this perfect, um, warning, a signpost, warning <laughs> sign, a whatever you want to call it. neon sign that says, get a therapist. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Do not do this. Right. (laughs) I think something that Jay likes to say that I always, that always resonates with me is that a good villain takes your hero's philosophy and brings it to the extreme. And Hmm. I think that that, if you, you know, if you look at the beast in season one, Martin Chatwin, uh, that is sort of a guy. 
it's Quentin's philosophy taken to the max, and he's shown the worst case scenario of continuing down this path. And I very much think, you know, Jay said it well, that Seb is that example of what happens if you let your grief overtake you. Mm. And so that felt like, a, you know, a relevant story for this season. And, you know, we try to, I think that Sarah and all the showrunners really hammer down every season on what is the theme and what, whether it's getting that into every storyline, every scene this season, the theme is how does grief, change you and how do Mm -hmm. you come out of something like that Uh, last season was there was a sort of fascism angle we were trying to to play up in a a sort of a sense of a drought um and uh and i think that it's nice to see those themes come through in every character from Bax to seb um and that just speaks to the higher-ups making sure that the vision the theme are incredibly clear from episode one to 13 and every Mm -hmm. character in between well, on that note, I think it's time to talk about fashion. Uh, Our favorites. <laughs> Danny, I know you had some thoughts about Sebastian's outfit in this episode. Yeah, I. it just reminded me of Jack Skellington's suit. So I was really proud of that. And it's like, finally, someone who's fashionable enough for Elliot, unlike his first season boyfriend, who was so lame, and I don't even remember his name now. Um, Mike. What was it? Mike? Mike, yeah. yeah. But while we're on Seb, though, I fucking loved his tattoo. I thought it was awesome. Wasn't Um, that great? I think that's fashion. Yeah, that's fashion. That was (laughs) was really well designed by our our production designer and her team. So it was, we were really happy with it, too. It was very nicely faded and it, it didn't look like oh, you yeah. just put it on that morning not for fresh. the shoot you know no it was very sort of well aged fun side note on the seb outfit of it all is that um the the Felorian style shirt is one that wraps sort of it's two parts it's almost like a robe yeah. and you tie bring the right side over to the left and you tie it and then you bring the left side over to the right and you tie it and Elliot wears that kind of shirt all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, Seb is a new character, so uh, Hale is is was on set, like helping him figure out how to tie the. <laughs> he was like, "Don't worry, I do this all the time. It's a little bit tricky. You got to do this." And, you, and oh. um, it was just. It's funny that you said that that Seb matches Elliot's fashion sense because literally Hale was teaching how to to wear that costume. I love that. <laughs> Um, going back to the tattoo, so Fenn, I think, said it was a Blackwood tree, which made me think of Father Blackwood and Sabrina, because I just finished watching season three of Sabrina, <laughs> um, which, of course, makes me think of the devil, where, and, like, our closest analog to the devil in the show is Hades, which is a little random, but, like, I don't know, go with it. This is my brain. It's, uh, you know, weird connection soup. Um, I uh-huh. also kind of wondered... Thinking about that, like, so they thought the tree was what the, was like part of this vitality conduit. Um, but since Seb comes back at the end of the episode, I don't think the vitality conduit thing can be real. Like, that can't be what they were, that can't be the conduit that he was mentioning. And of course, he never yeah. said vitality conduit. He just said conduit, and he thought it was the only way to save Fillory. Um, so I think it would have to be some other kind of conduit. What the fuck kind of conduit do you think it is, Danny? 
Um, well, I noticed that there's a bunch of little symbols slash sigils, whatever you want to call them, under the tree for mm. each root. And I don't know why, but something about it just, like, reminded me of Castle Blackspire in the books. Ooh, I like um, that. Like, the upside-down fillery where Martin is humanity up, and Rupert's actually there to witness it. They already did a version of Castle Blackspire on the show, though, so I'm not sure if they'll bring that back. And I know I keep bringing it back to Seb being Rupert, but, you know, it's there. Um, something She's just about mad because we didn't get to do a whole episode about it. <laughs> yeah, I There's a circular shape to the tattoo and, like, the roots that just make me think of it. It's, like, very circular, and it makes me kind of think of, like, Fillory upside down. Um, mm. Maybe he's tied to more of Fillory than just one tree. Well, I mean, we had the, like, fungus spore thing in the other plot, and uh, sort of for unrelated reasons, my old grad student union is on strike right now, and, like, they've been posting all these memes, and one of the memes they posted was about mushrooms, but they were talking about how these like how they have these, like, huge connected root structures under the ground. Um, I wonder mm-hmm. if it's something like that, like, that's how he's connected to more than one tree or whatever it is in Fillory. Mm. So many questions. Also... Mm. Fairies, mushrooms. I like <laughs> random connections I don't know what to do with. Fairies, mushrooms, spores. Ah! Right. <laughs> uh, it's a big internet connected universe, that's for sure. Oh, yes. You guys are circling around some interesting stuff for sure. That's all I'll say. I think it's a fi- it's a, definitely a fine line, like, like Julia having uh solved the wrong apocalypse like mm-hmm. you like there's there's a bit of fun with your characters being wrong but also like these are all incredibly smart people like realistically like they're all you know julie's like an mit mathematician yeah. like so you got to be real with um with that level of intelligence and also you don't i think at a certain point want to follow characters who just continually fuck up I mean, <laughs> fun, like, like, just being stupid so you know, I guess what I'll just say is like, there's, we're always trying to find the line of they are right and wrong. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. Was it, is it in just seven like when uh, Julia, like, oops, I solved the wrong world. Sorry. Or, yeah. Like, saved the wrong world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think it was. <laughs> Thousands of lives or whatever. Yeah. It's millions, like, billions, <laughs> billions. Uh, when she, yeah, her fuck up resulted in, in saving, you know, billions of lives. There are worse fuck ups. Uh, yeah. As far as the symbolism of the, word blackwood tree uh we're not that smart (laughs) (laughs) i don't think there's anything smart about the way that my brain did that (laughs) you know you just gotta go where it goes sometimes hope that some beetle poop gems come out um (laughs) uh so one of the other fashion things i wanted to comment on was just how much i love seeing julia in Florian garb because it it reminds me so much of her very brief goddess period uh, and the way that she like keeps wearing her hair in this episode also feels very goddessy. Like that two braid thing reminded me a lot of the episode where like Iris is trying to help her make that choice between like creating her own world. Interesting uh, that that happened in that episode too. Now that I'm mm. thinking about it, where she's trying to like decide between like creating her own world and um, like going to help her friends at the end of three. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Hair was rocking that episode. That's for sure. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And I know that Stella was really excited to get into Florian garb also because I think they're all always looking for you know different experiences. And Magali, our our costume designer, does these incredible like you know the New York like Breakbills kind of costumes are like you know they're nice, but they're like generally what everyday kind of stuff. And the yeah. fillery stuff is just like where does this come from? It's not even like based in history. It's just like this beautiful, crazy kind of like often mm-hmm. abstract and so everybody's always excited to get into Florian garb and I know that Stella was really psyched we saw exterior fillery Julia she was like I'm in like whatever yeah. the story is like <laughs> and one kind of interesting thing about the way that she's dressed in fillery is that like so everybody else in fillery kind of has a place and Josh makes that joke where he's like talking about what what all of their relationships are and he says that we have a Julia but that's kind of reflected yeah. in what she's wearing too because like Fen is dressed like a maid um, Josh is dressed, Josh and Elliot are both dressed, um, like sort of palace officials mm-hmm. of some, in some capacity. Margot mm-hmm. is dressed mm-hmm. in the Centurion Guard uniform. The only person who is dressed like in anything that isn't either like palace colors or like drab made garb or like Centurion, who doesn't have a uniform basically is Julia, and she's wearing these, like, pinks, um, and, like, these pinks and sort of creamy beiges. Uh, So I thought that was, like, a really interesting choice, that she is the one whose role in Fillory is kind of undefined to us, and her fashion is kind of undefined in the same way. Like, it's clearly Fillorian, but it also doesn't fit into one of those clear sort Mm -hmm. of uh, categories that we have. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think every department is part of the storytelling process on this show. And um, there are a few times in a script where we will say something specific about a character wearing jeans or this prop has to be in the scene Mm. or, Mm -hmm. you know, they interact with the ta-da sign in the uh, physical kid's cottage or something like that. But for the most part, it's really, really impressive creative team reading the scripts and asking themselves, how can I tell the story? Because we go to these prep meetings, costume, props, production design before every single episode. And Magali, in, in in regards to costume, she's not going in there and being like, this is a thing that Julia will wear. She's saying, well, I was thinking that Julia doesn't really have a role here. Mm-hmm. So maybe I'll put her in this sort of Valorian a peasant outfit because that's what they had on hand, but she doesn't really belong in the castle. So I don't want to make her look like she belongs in the castle. And Magali's making a specific choice to put, um, you know, when they're doing the body swap, Margot is raiding Elliot's wardrobe um, to, to dress Elliot, but how would she wear it? And so that it sort of is a Margot ish way to wear Elliot's clothes. How would, um, how would Elliot, have a Elliot-ish way of wearing Margot's clothes. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just sort of like, you know, if I'm in Alex's body and I go into Alex's closet, I'm going <laughs> to pick different clothes than what Alex would normally wear. I mean, you're because, both wearing black yeah. shirts right now, so I'm not entirely convinced. <laughs> well, I, <laughs> we actually, we often dress very differently. This is what I, this is generally what I wear in the writer's room. I just wear a black shirt. I'm known for my uniform of black shirt and jeans and jeans well known for for he's got a nice style i mean he comes in he's got nice ties he's got button downs um we have such different 
fashion senses. It was easy for us. When we went in and we pitched this episode, we body swapped. And we, <laughs> I dressed as Jay, and I came in in a khaki sport coat and, uh, and, and khakis. <laughs> and, um, and Jay came in looking like an emo 90s kid from New Jersey. Um, and, uh, I think just to help sell the idea that the body swap could work. Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. Danny, do you have any other fashion notes you want to bring up from the episode before we move to MVPs? Um, well, I love Julia's centurion look because she does wear one when she pretends to be one when she, you know, stabby, stabby. <laughs> Pretty um, badass. Yeah. Yeah. Stella looks amazing with that sword and that outfit. Super badass. Um, even my girlfriend who doesn't really like Julia was like, oh, she's a badass right there. <laughs> Pretty badass. Yeah, um, absolutely. And I also love Elliot's single curl that he has on his face when he had his hair up. <laughs> good, good final That's fashion notes. Yeah. <laughs> so MVP time. This is another fantastic ensemble episode, like most of the episodes this season. But purely for the hilarity and difficulty of the body swap conceit, I'm going to slip my MVP vote between Hale and Summer. Because, come on. Like, <laughs> they... That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> um, Danny, what about you? Well, I would give it to them, too. But I also feel like our guests deserve the honor as well. So, Alex and Jay, thanks uh, for writing no, this no, episode. No. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> Undeserved, but thank you. Such so much fun. Um, Alex, you want to shout anyone out? I definitely want to shout out uh, Aaron, who was a, an amazing guest star. And then I also want to shout out Michael Graziadi, who mm-hmm. played Ray. And he was just, it's just like this tiny role of the character who comes in and sort of explains a little bit about the page and, you know, and then he dies the next scene and we were on set and we were like, the biggest mistake we made in this entire episode was killing this character because this guy <laughs> is such an amazing actor. Michael just had this amazing <laughs> energy um, and he was funny and he was serious. You took him very seriously. Anyway, so <laughs> Michael, I thought, was a real... Real, MV, you know, sort of MVP of this episode. You took the words out of my mouth. I, I think um, it's always impressive when someone who is new to the show comes in and in a single scene has a voice, fits right in with the cast, and has brings this interesting energy into the scene. Since you already said, Michael, I'm going to give it to Rick Worthy because he nice. also is just a one-scene presence. Mm-hmm. And um, I just thought oh, that he's, he's just amazing. He's just really, really fun to um, watch work and watch play. And there's something about the caged animal quality that he brings to Dean Fogg 17 that mm-hmm. um, is really fun. It's like a slight variation on the Dean Fogg flavor that we know and love, but it's a new one. And it's just it's just interesting to watch, I think, every time. I'm glad that we still have Fogg 17 to play with. Psycho Fogg, just to say. So... I think those are great choices and brings us into our final analysis. So uh, you haven't been on the show before, so you don't know that for the past four seasons we've been doing ratings and, like, struggling awkwardly with it as the seasons progress because, like, they've been getting so much better and we keep sort of... (laughs) We keep starting by grading the pilot based off, like, the previous season's rubric and then we're fucked because everything just gets tens. Um... (laughs) So... (laughs) This season, we've just been, like, doing a kind of sum up of, like, what worked for us and what didn't. Um, And I will start. I really enjoyed this episode. Like I said, the body swap was so delightful and well done. And like Danny was saying earlier, it was nice to see the spark of romance getting lit for both Elliot and Alice this season. 
Um, I love that the people they're getting close to have both lost people. I think everything you said earlier about that was like on point. It adds depth to these episodes. Whether they end up going into a romantic place ultimately or whether they sort of stay as friendships or um, stabby stabby ships, whatever that is. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the final... Uh, I also really loved the thing that, like, Margot said to Elliot at the end of this episode, that just because he's had bad luck in love doesn't mean he deserves it any less or that he won't find the right person. That final moment between the two of them was really big for me because it seems like they're back on an even keel with each other after, like, seven episodes of being kind of not in a good place together um, and, like, shifting back and forth a lot. Uh, I also really enjoy the way this episode is constructed. It didn't feel like y'all were trying to pack too much in. And as I mentioned at the top... I like that we're starting to get some payoff in this episode. It's really well-paced. It's well-situated to make the season's pacing feel good overall. And the one very, very minor complaint that I have about this episode is that the Florian plotline felt more substantial than the Break Bills plotline, which honestly isn't even, like, a big thing. Like, it's the A plot and the B plot, and, you know, usually one matters more than the others. But I think because the Alice and back stuff happened in the B plot, I just, I kind of wanted more time to sit with it than (laughs) than we got. So I'm excited to see more of that come later. Danny. What about you? Well, I feel like you sum it up pretty well. Um, But I love how much of an ensemble this season really is. Like, we get to see the actors all together a lot more than we have previously. And I always love seeing Julia and Fillory because... (laughs) Queen Julia. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I think the pregnancy will add an interesting layer to Julia. And I do really love the budding relationships with Alice and Elliot, like you mentioned. Um... I do really hope that even though the Scooby gang attempted to assassinate Seb, that they will work it out in the future. Every episode (laughs) makes me more and more excited for the rest of the season. And I just think it's collectively like everyone's best work on the show. 100% agree. Well, we take no credit for that. (laughs) 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 Uh, But it's been a blast to be a part of. I mean, it's been so much fun. Yeah. Well, That, unfortunately, takes us to the end of our time with you. But Alex and Jay, thank you so much for joining us. I can't believe this is the first time it's happened. I know. Uh, Thank you for listening to our long-winded rambling. Um, And of course, thanks to our listeners for tuning in. If you like the show, head on over to iTunes. I guess it's Apple Podcasts now. My husband, my husband who edits this, shouted from the room where he was editing to me like two rooms away. iTunes isn't a thing anymore (laughs) while he was editing the last (laughs) episode. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, head on over to not iTunes and leave us your rating and review. The more we get, the easier it is for new new listeners to find us. And that's it. Bye. Bye. Thanks, guys. Mind slide.